So when was the last time you ran? It almost seems a rule adults don't typically run, right? When was the last time you ran? And I don't mean like you wanted to get some exercise and so you went for a jog around the neighborhood. Some of you probably say you don't run unless something's chasing you, which may be the case for many of you. But when you, when you think about the last time you ran, it was probably something bad or good. Often we think in terms of something bad, a dog chasing you. A mother maybe ran out to the road to scoop up her child who was in danger. But it could also be something happy, arriving home from the airport and you see your family and you just can't help but pick up the pace a little bit. Whenever an adult runs, often it is caused by some sense of urgency or eagerness. Urgency to get away from something or an eagerness to get to something. Well, in our text this morning, that same sort of urgency is present as we see a lot of running take place. The disciples run, Mary runs. It is this this eagerness, this sense of urgency where they have to go and see this thing that has taken place or report what it is that they have seen. Often we might run when something upsets our status quo. We're going about our business and then some emergency takes place and we run. In this passage, the missing body of Jesus upsets the status quo. The disciples, Mary Magdalene, they are, they're going about their business. Yes, there's been a a huge event which has just taken place, Jesus' death, and yet now something has changed. This upsets their status quo. The resurrection of Jesus upsets their status quo. As I was considering these things in this text, I was also considering their urgency and eagerness versus often how we can treat the resurrection of Jesus with such nonchalance. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's alive. This, it, this should blow our minds. Now, in one sense, we, we can't, it, it must be this way. You can't live in a state of exhilaration every minute of every day. And yet, in another sense, in a very real sense, there should be an eagerness to life, a joy to life, a sort of urgency to life because of the resurrection from the dead. Even in the midst of sorrow and challenging times and trials, there's this underlying joy that Jesus is alive. As we look at this passage, we see uh, the resurrection account and, then, and many appearances of Jesus to his disciples just by way of taking note of the structure. Notice that there are, we could call them two scenes in chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. These are a couple of scenes at the tomb of Jesus. And then in verses 19 to 29, which we'll get to in coming weeks, we could call scene two, where the disciples are gathered together and Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. And in each case, there, is, there are more disciples involved and then there is a, a, private, a sort of a private revelation. In this passage this morning, there are visits to the empty tomb in verses 1 through 10. And then 
Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene in 11 through 18. So that's just a, a rough sketch of our structure, and that's how I'll be taking the sermon this morning, verses 1 through 18. Episode 1 is in verses 1 through 10, these visits to the tomb. And then in 11 through 18, episode 2, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. One thing you'll see that these two episodes have in common, a person is moved from confusion, questioning, wonder, to faith. Or in the case of Mary, confusion and fear and sorrow. And then she is moved to recognition. She recognizes Jesus. Consider first these verses 1 through 10. These visits to the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene goes, she's going about her business, but she arrives at the tomb and she sees that the stone has been rolled away. She doesn't look in at this point, but she sees something's wrong. Something is is desperately wrong the stone has been rolled away and she immediately concludes from the stone being rolled away that somebody's taken the body of jesus his body is not there she goes and runs and reports this to the disciples specifically we're told that she tells peter and the other disciple who is referred to as the one whom jesus loved we've encountered this other disciple several times this one whom jesus Loves And she reports to them, the body of Jesus is missing. Peter and uh, the other disciple, we, we often presume that it, it's John. Peter and John run to the tomb. And we are told that the other disciple outran Peter. And there's been a lot of speculation. Well, what is this? Why, why this detail? And why, how did John outrun Peter? And I don't have a good answer Uh, One commentator says, uh, being referred to as the one whom Jesus loved, that it was because his love that he outran Peter. Well, maybe, but he's the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, We would expect it would be reciprocal. Some have said, well, it's because he was younger, and so he outran Peter. And I really take offense to that, because (laughs) I'm sure I can outrun many of you, (laughs) you young bucks. Uh, I, the, the conclusion I came up with was because he's faster. <laughs> he was faster than Peter. And they get there and uh, the other disciple peeks in and he sees a little bit, but he doesn't go in. He waits for Peter. Peter goes in and sees before him these grave clothes. And the author does make much of this detail in particular about the grave clothes The face cloth itself is lying separately, rolled up or folded up. It was was, uh, taken care of in a different way. And both of these disciples, Peter and John, see the same thing. They see the grave clothes laying there and they see the face cloth laid up, folded off by itself. And yet, we're told that there were different results from them seeing this. Peter simply sees it and returns But in verse 8, we see that the other disciple saw and believed. And the the scene is kind of delayed for us to get to this climax of the other disciple looking in at the grave clothes and believing. Particularly, he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. The author notes in verse 9, As yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. 
We're not sure what scripture he's speaking of, perhaps all throughout the Old Testament scripture. Some have mentioned Jesus' own words in the rest of the gospel. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to pick it up again. Perhaps we could look at Psalm 16.10, which says God will not let his Holy One see corruption. So John believes, he sees the grave clothes, he sees the evidence before him, and he believes in the resurrection of the dead, even though at this point in time they're not connecting it to the scripture which had been foretold, that he must rise from the dead. Well, in this scene from confusion and uncertainty to faith, what we have highlighted is a contrast between Peter and the other disciple. Perhaps this too is what is illustrated by John outrunning Peter. This contrast between these two men by what they see and by what takes place. We see the faith of the beloved disciple in seeing the grave clothes and Peter not yet coming to the same conclusion or faith in the resurrection. One church father, Chrysostom, says, If anyone had removed the body, he would not have stripped it first, nor would he have taken the trouble to remove and roll up the headcloth and put it in a place by itself. That makes sense of some of the evidence which John saw, which led him to believe, but Peter saw the same thing. So I think that the author is pointing to a different sort of faith rather than one that is simply reasoned out so that he understands the truth of what happened. This faith mentioned here appears to be more spiritual in nature. He spiritually believes and is placing trust in the God who has raised his Lord up from the dead. Well, how do we explain this faith? Was John not only faster than Peter, but also just more intellectually inclined? He was more logical about what he had seen. We can think about this in terms of our own lives, how two people can often see the same thing and come to completely different opinions about it. You remember a few several years ago, what color is the dress? Is it, I can't even remember, is it that gold color? Is it a blue color? Two people would see the same picture on the same device and they would come to different conclusions. Or if you're a sports fan, you see the replays. And even if you see the replays, you're still going to disagree about what took place, if it was a foul or if it was out of bounds. We see the same thing, and yet we come to vastly different conclusions. Well, some have explained the faith of John yet again as, well, this is the one whom loved, who loved Jesus. He's described as the one whom Jesus loved. Therefore, they shared a, a closer bond together. And John, because of his love for Jesus, because he wanted to believe, he came to faith. But, again, I, w- I would help let us consider that this is, he's referred to not as the one whom, who loved Jesus, but as the one whom Jesus loved. I think it would be better to see his faith as coming from Jesus' love for him. Jesus' love for him resulted in faith. And this, would, this is in accord with the rest of the book of John, speaking about where faith comes from. It's not a, it's not a thing that you work up within yourself. It's, it doesn't come by mere reasoning out the facts. Faith is a gift from God. And here, John comes to believe in the resurrection, not because of the evidence, but because God 
sovereignly worked up faith in his heart. He saw the same thing Peter did, and he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. You see this contrast between Peter and the beloved disciple. And we see that evidence played a part in John's coming to faith, but it wasn't, it wasn't sufficient in itself to bring him to faith. And so we should conclude that visible, visible evidence, visual evidence, doesn't necessarily result in faith in this case or in the case of you or me or others who we are calling to believe in the resurrected Lord. Visible evidence though valuable in some ways, ultimately is insufficient to produce faith. It is not a work of man. It doesn't come from enough reasoning as if you you could somehow reason someone to faith. Now, we don't despise evidence or reason. There is a place for apologetics, and we, we should talk about the grave clothes that were lying there, the eyewitnesses that saw and reported the resurrection of Jesus. We should talk about the Word and its uh, sufficiency and its reliability that this is this comes from eyewitnesses we we could talk about the the scriptures and how it is accurate and yet we should expect that there's going to be there's going to need to be something else for someone to come to faith the faith is not illogical it is not unreasonable it is coherent and yet there is a supernatural element to faith Consider this, friends, for your own understanding of who Jesus is. If you are an unbeliever, if you haven't come to place your faith in Jesus Christ, there's no amount of evidence that's going to convince you. You're not going to reason yourself into faith. There's no amount of Bible memorization or Bible study that will change your mind to help you trust in the resurrected Lord. It is going to come from God as a gift. Consider this in speaking to others. People you know who you are seeking to love by, by speaking to them about Christ. Reason with them. Give them good reasons to believe. There are good reasons to believe. And yet, ultimately, you have to understand, ultimately, it's dependent upon God to reach down and change their hearts. Give them faith. Therefore, what, what, what ought we to do? We speak and we reason and we we share the gospel. Jesus Christ came and died for sinners and rose again from the dead. You awake yet? We speak and we work and we do all these things, but ultimately it should lead us to prayer. It should lead us to prayer for, for those friends that we want to know Jesus Christ. Well, first, if you're not a believer, it should lead you to pray. You, you can pray, God, I know all of what's reported about Jesus, and I want to believe. Not just intellectually, but I, I want to place my trust in you. Please give me faith. Help me, help me to understand and let it, let it change my heart. And then praying for one another, praying for others who don't know Christ. Pray for them, your brothers and sisters in Christ. If your faith came from God, on that first day, do you think you're going to be working up faith now? Faith for every circumstance you encounter, faith for every trial, faith for every fear. You are in need of a gift from God. Give me more faith. Pray. Ask the Lord to give it to you. Pray for your brothers and sisters. 
that they might have faith as well. For what situation, for what trial are you currently in need of faith? And how are you going about to get that faith? Now certainly God does give us means of growing our faith. The reading of the word and prayer and speaking truth to one another. But ultimately it should drive us to dependence upon God. We need you, God, to give this faith to us. Faith is a sovereign gift from God and we are dependent upon him if we were going to have it in any quantity or any quality. Notice the second move from confusion to faith or recognition in episode 2. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene in verses 11 through 18. The disciples go back to their home and Mary stays weeping at the tomb. It's interesting, instead of seeing the grave clothes, she sees two angels. What also is interesting is she's not alarmed at seeing them. She converses with them. What, What have you done with the body? Where is the body of my Lord? And then her attention is moved to this man who is standing nearby. Again, notice the, the build-up, the delay in the author telling us what is taking place in order to build up the tension and to build up to this climax of understanding. She sees Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Mary sees him but doesn't recognize him. Does, she doesn't recognize his appearance. She doesn't recognize his voice initially either. Some have said, well, this was because her eyes were uh, filled with tears and she couldn't see very well. But in in other resurrection appearances, it seems like there's a difference in the resurrected Jesus. And this teaches us something about the resurrection and the resurrected body. Uh, The empty tomb uh, scenarios and scenes show continuity with the body that with the body of Jesus from before resurrection and after resurrection. So it's the same body. His his body's not in the grave any longer. It's not it didn't just disappear and then something totally different appears. There's continuity between the earthly body and the heavenly body. But these scenes of lack of recognition show that there has been a change. There's been a transformation that has taken place in the body of Jesus. And so people might ask, well, will we recognize one another in heaven? Well, of course we will. It will be the same sort of body, and yet there will be a transformation to a glorious body. And I think this accounts for Mary's lack of recognition of Jesus. But when is it that she recognizes finally Jesus? When is it that she moves from confusion to recognition? It is only when Jesus calls her by her name and says, Mary that she recognizes him. We should think back to John chapter 10, verse 3, and this, the shepherd who is gathering his sheep from all the nations. My sheep hear my voice, and I call them by their own names and lead them out. Jesus, the chief shepherd, calls Mary by her name, and she recognizes him. She, she hears him, and she follows him, and she clings to him. And this is a physical illustration of the spiritual reality of coming to recognize who Jesus is. 
by way of analogy, it's like when you're trying to figure out a problem, you're trying to, you're trying to work towards a solution to a problem. Maybe kids, you've been working on a math problem for so long and you just can't figure out. And then all of a sudden, it's like the light bulb comes on. Oh, that's how you do it. I can see it now. It makes sense. For me, all math problems are still confusing. But you know that situation where it's like you've been working on something for so long and you don't know what it is, but all of a sudden it, it makes sense now. You have understanding. You have recognition. Coming to recognize Jesus is like this in, in a spiritual way. Again, it is a sovereign work of God. It is God doing it in your mind, but it is, it is enlightening of your eyes, enlightening of your understanding. You come to understand for instance, many of you were raised in church. If you're like me, you were raised doing Bible drill, memorizing scripture, going to RAs or GEAs, going to Sunday school and church every week. And yet, it, it didn't like penetrate your being. It didn't penetrate your heart. You had it all in your mind, and yet it didn't fully dawn on you the truth of who Jesus is. And then one day, by the grace of God, through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of Jesus, your eyes are opened and you see the wonder of who the resurrected Jesus is and you've got to have more of him. You all of a sudden delight in him. You see, not only that Jesus became a man, that he lived his life of humility and servanthood, that he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. You not only understand that Jesus rose from the dead, you understand all of this stuff is for you. And you embrace it. And if you haven't done that, I, I want to call on you to embrace the Lord Jesus, to delight in him. I pray that God would enlighten your eyes and give you understanding to see who Christ is. And this is what Jesus is doing as the great shepherd. He is calling. He's gathering his people from all the nations. He's speaking their names and they are coming. They are, they are coming as the word of Christ is proclaimed. The spirit of God is working underneath and around that preaching of the gospel, the speaking of the gospel. As you go and speak to your friends, the spirit of God is there gathering his sheep pulling them, gathering around him. Notice the significance of Jesus' words to Mary. Many have focused on this first imperative, don't cling to me, but I think even its significance lies in the rest of the words that follow. For, here's why you shouldn't cling to me, I haven't yet ascended to the Father. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. My presence is not ultimately what you need at this time, Mary. Rather, you need the Spirit of God, whom will be poured out when I am lifted up, when I am ascended from the earth. Don't cling to me because I'm ultimately, my physical presence is not what you need. You need the Spirit of God inside of you. As one commentator says, Jesus is going to his Father with a salvific purpose. He's not 
going to be content to prepare heavenly dwelling places to which one day he will take his disciples. Rather, he will return from his father to the disciples to establish them in a new relationship with God by giving them the Spirit. This is how God is reconciling us ultimately, giving us a new relationship with himself through Jesus Christ by the indwelling Spirit of God within us. Notice a couple of things about what Jesus says. Go to, first, my brothers and tell them. They are his spiritual brothers. Not, he's not saying go to my biological brothers, my family, and tell them these things. He's saying go to these, these brothers of mine. There is a, now a family involved my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Some have seen this as Jesus making a distinction between his Father and your Father, my God and your God. But I think he's, he's not wanting to draw the distinction. He's wanting to say it's the same sort of relationship. He's your Father just in the same sense that he's my Father. He's your God in the same sense he is my God. We have language here of family. We have been adopted into the family of God. This is, this is a multi-ethnic, international brotherhood and sisterhood who have the same God and the same Father. This is a new people, not characterized by national citizenship, not by language or skin color, not by common interests or hobbies, but united together by our faith in the resurrected Jesus and the Holy Spirit who indwells us. This is a new people who are characterized by the fulfillment of the new covenant promises. In Jeremiah 31, 33, I will have a new people. I will be their God. They will be my people. My spirit will be within them and I will cause them to walk in my ways. Brothers and sisters, consider from this your identity in Christ. Your identity in the resurrected Lord. Because he died and rose again, because he ascended and poured out his spirit, you are sons and daughters of the Most High God. This all-powerful God we meditated on this morning, he's your father. He is able to do anything and everything, and he is your father. That means he looks upon you with compassion, like a good father looks upon his children, seeking to nurture them and care for them and comfort them and love them. This is your father. This is your identity in Christ. And not only are you sons and daughters, you are brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. This speaks of a a closeness that we have with one another, that we ought to have with one another, with genuine relationships, genuine love for one another, carrying out these one another commands, seeking one another's good, encouraging each other, serving each other, forgiving each other, bearing with one another. You are brothers and sisters in Christ and children of the Most High God. Our identity of brothers and sisters is not dependent on earthly traits or shared characteristics, shared concerns, but it is based in the reality of the the resurrected Jesus and the indwelling Spirit of God. We ought to consider 
brothers and sisters, our identity and as brothers and sisters in Christ and how we're walking that out with one another. Is there an intentionality with one another? You, you might look at a brother or sister within the church and think, well, we, we could never be close friends. We could never really get together. We could never really have a close relationship. But you're failing to understand the depth of relationship that is already there, the truth of relationship that is already there because of the same Spirit who indwells you both. Walk out your identity. Live in light of the truth of your identity with one another. And even as we can consider our identity as sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, we remember the Good Shepherd is gathering more. He's gathering more. Through this word of proclamation that is exemplified by Mary here, I have seen the Lord. She carries the good news back to to the disciples. I've seen the Lord. He is alive. And through this proclamation to one another, brothers and sisters, I have seen the Lord. I have experienced the Lord. I have a living relationship with Jesus through the Holy Spirit. This is what binds us together. This is what will grow us in love for one another. And this is that which will gather in other sheep for the glory of God. Let's pray together.